I'll just be frank, I think military guys are often the worst at this, but coming up here, looking at Republican leadership or whoever their leadership is and believing that's their new commanding officer and that they must fall in line and do what they're told, when in reality, your commanding officer are the 750,000 people that sent you here. Welcome back to The Kevin Roberts Show. It is very exciting to talk to this guest this week. He is someone who served his country in uniform, someone who is a newer member of Congress that I can tell you, all of us at Heritage, all of us in the conservative movement, any American, regardless of how they describe themselves politically, if they know common sense and they love common sense, can count on. And I think it's going to be an episode where, you know, we talk about the truth. So without further ado, one of my newer friends in Washington, Congressman Eli Crane, thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me on, Kevin. Appreciate it. You're from the great state of Arizona. That's right. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about your district, talk about your experience in D.C. But as is kind of the custom, Eli, what I try to do on this show with any of our guests, but especially elected officials, is to to kind of humanize them. Right. To show, and they're going to really like the human side of you, <laughs> as I know, uh, just to show people <clears throat> that amid all of the kind of brass knuckle policy fights, which you're in the middle of, and thank you for that, we're in the middle of at Heritage, that there's something more important, which is living the good life, which I know that you try to protect in uniform. And I kind of want to start there. Tell us your story from Navy SEAL to member of Congress. Yeah, well, uh, thank you. I was, you know, blessed and grateful to have the opportunity to serve uh, in the military. Um, I joined the Navy the week after 9-11 and dropped out of school to do that and uh, tried for the SEAL teams right off the bat. Didn't make it through uh, my first round, so I went to uh, a ship in Mayport, Florida. It was an Aegis missile cruiser, and so I did uh, two and a half years on that ship. Uh, we did two, two cruises um, on that ship, and then I got an opportunity to go back to SEAL training and uh, went through that time and then uh, got stationed at SEAL Team 3, where I deployed immediately to Iraq. Um, in 2006, I went to Habania and then came back, did a workup 2008, um, basically went all over the country on that deployment in Iraq and then did one more deployment in 2010 to Iraq. So um, after that, I decided that I was, I wanted to kind of turn the page a little bit. And so, um, you know, did a lot of praying about it, decided to re-enlist for four years to give myself time to plan my exit from the military. And, uh, you know, started, uh, do, I was a VBSS instructor, um, in, in my last couple years. And then, uh, we, we also started a small business called Bottle Breacher that ended up getting featured on Shark Tank right as I was getting out of the military. So it was a, it was a total blessing, but we just kind of went from one, pretty high paced thing to another because our business exploded um, right as I was getting out. It went from like six employees to I think 35 employees within two weeks of me getting out of the <laughs> That's military. exploding. Yeah. So it was, it was an absolute blessing and I just felt, you know, God was guiding us the entire time and I was always in prayer asking him, okay, what's next, Lord? What do you, what do you want us to do? And so that's kind of what led me to uh, this, this new chapter in our lives running for Congress and you know, I'm grateful to have an amazing wife that, you know, uh, gives me permission to do it. And so, 
Um, it's a big sacrifice, right? Not, no, not, not it, just for members, but for their spouses and their families. Oh, yeah, it's huge. I mean, we're usually up here in D.C. about three weeks out of the month. Um, I have two young kids, a 16-year-old and a 12-year-old. So my wife is holding down the fort, you know, and duking it out every single day. And so I'm grateful. It is. And I just want to home in on that. I do want to go back to that 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 moment um, when 9-11 happened that motivated you to, to join the Navy. But I think a lot of people who are political junkies, which would probably describe a lot of this audience, right? People follow the policy. They might follow particular politicians. No doubt some of them follow you as they should. They don't know, speaking about the human side of it, the this transcends Republican and Democrat. This is true for your Democrat colleagues too, right? That the sacrifice it takes, especially on the House side, to be up here. And, and I know you're willing to do it, right? You're, yeah. you're willing to serve your country. You don't complain about it. That's not the point of raising the issue. It's that it's a really big deal. It can be very disruptive to family life if you're not proactive and I would argue prayerful as I know you are about it. No, absolutely. And so I talked about the being up here three weeks a month. Um, then you go back home and a lot of people, a lot of people when, when Congress leaves, they're like, oh, they're taking time off, you know, and usually it doesn't work that way. Usually when you go home, I mean, you're, you're out in the district and I have one of the biggest districts in the country. And so we do a lot of wind, we spend a lot of time looking at the windshield and driving around and, but it's, it's good. It's a blessing. And for me, you know, I'm just grateful. I think a lot of veterans get into trouble when they exit the military and a lot of, I, I think the media and, you know, the perception is that it's PTSD, PTSD all the time. I think a lot of the time it's that, you know, we're hardwired for mission. And when you no longer have that mission, something greater than yourself that you're serving, I think a lot of us get into trouble. And so for me, this is a blessing. This is just a way to serve my country one more time. And I think uh, we can both agree that we need it. We need, we, we need, you know, people coming up here that aren't afraid to buck the system and are willing to try and shake things up because this place is accessible. It really well, is. Well, and, and that's the, the, in terms of real substantive points, that, that's the real gist of, of our conversation today as it has been in, in prior conversations you and I have had that Washington is beyond broken. It's a cesspool. And it, as we have seen this very week to swerve into, into policy, it chews up good men and women oh, in yeah. the House and Senate. And I'm not going to cite names at this point for, for that very reason, good men and women, but it's very obvious. If you think about this absurd Senate, I call it a Ukraine bill disguised as a border non-security bill, um, that, that involved some really good, fine people, um, not talking about the, the Republican Senate leader, and, and thankfully, we've been able to kill it. Yeah. Border security is important to every American. It's really important for people in Arizona, particularly in your district. Where do we go from here, given that in the last 48 hours, Thankfully, we've killed at least one part of that bill. The foreign aid part is going to come back up, which we'll talk about. But from your perspective in the House, how do we fix this? Well, it's going to be interesting. And as you know, Kevin, I'm a freshman, you know, so, um, you know, I don't get to drive this bus. Um, but what I hope, where I hope we go is I hope that our leadership, you know, in both the House and the Senate um, realizes that the American people are watching now more than probably they, they ever have. And I think that one of the reasons this whole thing got killed is because you saw activism far and wide across the country of people who have been watching this issue kind of metastasize across the country, seeing the effects of it. 
um, you know, this open border and have been calling and emailing and texting and, you know, tweeting their, their representatives. And, you know, when this text came out initially, thankfully, uh, some of it got leaked. And so it, it really spun up that activism engine, you know, shout out to, you know, some of the activist centered shows like Steve Bannon's war room and others, you know, who, you know, got, you know, got their listeners, their viewers to start lighting up members of Congress and, and the Senate to actually try and kill this thing. And I think that's what it's going to take. I think that one of the reasons we're in this spot, Kevin, is because of the American people. We've had it so good for so long, we've become complacent. And so when I travel around the country and when I travel around, you know, my district and I talk to people, you'd be surprised at how few people can even tell you who their representatives are. And that's a problem, right? And, you know, that, that complacency, I think it, you know, um, it's problematic because, you know, this country was set up to be by and for the people. And when those people are checked out, there's a vacuum that's created. And unfortunately, right now, I think that vacuum is being, you know, filled by lobbyists, special interest groups, um, and people that, you know, really uh, influence the leaders up here and the officials up here. Um, and, and it's not the best thing. And, and their interests are not for the American people, right? Their, influ- their, their influence is always something else. It's a heck of a cycle, right? That you, and it's a little bit of a chicken or egg question. That is to, to think about Washington being a cesspool, as you say. Yeah. And I've been up here about the same time as you, a couple of years, and it's, it's a cesspool. Um, but the, one of the reasons it not only continues to be a cesspool, but that the cesspool gets deeper, if you will, is because of the complacency, and, or I would even say the disengagement that so many Americans have. But the point is, I don't want to necessarily put all the blame on, on our fellow Americans. I know you're not. That one of the reasons there's this increased disengagement, especially in the generation of, say, our own kids, yeah. is that Washington's accessible. Yeah. And But to conclude on an optimistic note here, defeating this ridiculous bill from the Senate for now is a reminder that when good media channels, good members of Congress... Maybe Heritage had a tiny role in this, other organizations. When, when we're unified and we've harnessed our energy on either promoting really good policy or, in this case, killing really bad policy, it can happen. And that ought to be kind of a shot in the arm for us as we look to the future about taking the country back. Do you, do you feel that as a member of Congress or does the weight of the cesspool of Washington seem like too big of an obstacle? Um, I do feel it a little bit, but I'm already starting to think about the next fights, you know, this mega supplemental, they're going to try and push down our throats. And so, and that's the way this place works, right? The establishment, the swamp never sleeps. They, they, they don't, they don't look at the, this whole thing getting killed and say, ah, oh, well, these guys beat us. It's time to pack it up and go home. No, you know, and, and so it's just going to take that consistency and it's going to take people to get up every day ready, ready for the fight, who love this country, who are willing to, you know, sacrifice, you know. The, and, and that's one thing that I've seen up here, Kevin. One of the frustrating things is you might not know this, but, you know, um, you know, Kevin McCarthy is plotting his revenge against those of us that took him out. And that's, that's fine. That ca- kind of comes with the territory. The reason I bring that up is because... Um, I, I think we need more people up here that are willing to go home, 
that are willing to shake things up and they're willing to put their political careers on the line. Because when I, I, I watch a lot of these politicians, these senior you know politicians and whatnot, and a lot of them have the attitude of, well, I don't, I don't want to step out. Like I, you know, because if I step out and I get taken out, then I won't be able to, you know, I won't be able to enact that policy or that bill or, you know, take, take care of this group that I promised, you know, this, that, or the other thing too. And I think that we're at one of those inflection points in history where we need more people that are willing to take those risks, take those shots and go home, regardless of what you think of the motion to vacate, you know, that, that whole thing. And so, um, I'm just grateful that if my political career is very short lived and that's a very real possibility that at least I, at least when, you know, at the end of it, I won't look back on it and think, Manny, like you shouldn't have been cowering in the corner. You should have like, you know, you should have done everything you could to impact change. Yeah. Because the, the, the incentive structure in Washington is for you, especially as a freshman house member in, in a swing district to, to get along. Oh, to, absolutely. To, 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 to salute. Right. Right. And say to salute to Mitch McConnell of all people. Yeah. And I don't know if you noticed, we don't salute to Mitch McConnell at the Heritage Foundation. It's time for, for Mitch. Uh, wish him on the personal side a, uh, a long and healthy retirement. But the time has come, right? He's the reason that we kind of bang on Leader McConnell on the political side is because for those of us who are movement conservatives like you and me, he is the icon of what's wrong in Washington. Absolutely. I could, I couldn't agree more. I, I also wish Mitch a happy, you know, nothing but the best, but he needs to go. He absolutely needs to go. If we're going to save this country, we cannot have leadership like Mitch McConnell full stop. So are you even just cautiously optimistic that there might be more men and women wired like you this election cycle running for the House, running for the Senate, where we can increase the numbers, or do you think the swamp's going to win? You know, I, I, I like to have hope. I don't put my hope in Washington, D.C. or That's politicians. <laughs> my hope is in Christ alone. And, you know, it's it, I, I, I've got to believe there's a reason he has me up here. But one of the things, Kevin, that I hope comes out of, you know, this year, and people say, oh, it's the you know, least successful Congress of all time. One of the one of the things that I hope comes out of this year is that people, other candidates that are out there right now, and I've talked to many of them, but I hope that they see that you don't have to come in here, fall in line, say, sir, yes, sir, and do what you're told. This is one of the biggest problems, I think, with DC, Kevin, is that a lot of people come up here and... Uh, I'll just be frank. I think military guys are often the worst at this, but coming up here, looking at Republican leadership or whoever their leadership is and believing that's their new commanding officer and that they must fall in line and do what they're told. When in reality, your commanding officer are the 750,000 people that sent you here. And I think if more representatives saw it that way, I think that, you know, the dynamic up here would be much different. Tell us on that point, and I agree with that entirely. In fact, you might say the entire value proposition for for a member of Congress like yourself or for us at the at the broader heritage enterprise is exactly the same. That is, sometimes people will ask me, we had this conversation when we first met because you were a little, as you should be, with us being headquartered in D.C. I wouldn't say standoffish. You were perfectly polite, but you were, you were circumspect yep. about, and you are still, as you should be, about having friends in DC. Yeah. 
and, and but the point is that the reason you're effective and thankfully you've, you've got colleagues who are effective is because you're connected to your constituents. The reason we're largely able to be inoculated from the swampiness is because of the people who support heritage being outside DC. You know, they're my bosses, yeah. right? In the same way that your constituents are your commanding officers. We need more of that in DC and frankly, state capitals yep. if, we, if we wanna take back the country. But that's a long lead up to a question about your district. Tell us about your constituents. Tell us about the things they care about and tell us about, you know, that one week out of the month when you're touring your district, what it's like. Yeah, well, first let me go back to something you said about um, being standoffish and, you know, not wanting to make friends up here. I decided, you know, that our our level of friendship was gonna grow a little bit once I saw your speech at the World Economic <laughs> Forum. Well, well done, Kevin. I'm proud of you, man. I was Thanks. like, I was like, yeah, Kevin, get him. Channeling the common that's, man, right? That's right. Um, but as far as back in my district, I, I represent some amazing just patriots. They love this country. And, you know, I, I think for the most, speaking for a lot of them, I, I think what they want the most is for limited government and they want the government to stay out of their lives. You know, they, they don't trust, they don't trust this government and I can't blame them. And so they want people up here busting it up, um, and, and limiting its power. And I don't, you know, and I, I feel the same way. And I think it's one of the reasons they sent me up here. Cause they thought, you know, this guy doesn't have any experience. He's got a lot of tattoos. He often wears a ball cap on the campaign trail, but I think this guy might be a little, I think he might actually do what he says, says he's going to do and come up here and fight for us. And so I'm honored to represent them. I'm honored that I've already got to show them that, you know, that it wasn't a bunch of campaign gibberish and, and nonsense that I, I meant it. I, I'd never wanted to be a politician, Kevin, and I, I hate wearing a suit, but here we are. And so if I'm going to be up here, um, you know, I, I want to be throwing down for them every single day. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful to represent the fine people of Arizona second. Authenticity goes a long way, doesn't yeah. it? it? It does. And it's in short supply in D.C. Yes, sir. So if I gave you a magic wand to fix the border problem, what would Eli Crane do? Well, I believe in, you know, kiss, keep it simple, stupid, right? I, I think a lot of the time up here, a lot of these, you, you were talking about, con, you know, common sense at the beginning of this show. I would start by going back to what was working under the last administration. I, I think that's a good starting point. We saw the difference between then and now. And I'm not saying we can't improve on even what it was then. I know President Trump wanted to do a lot more, but he was just receiving so much um, <clears throat> incoming and so much opposition. And so I think that that's the first thing that we should do. Some of the policies that he had, um, I think that we should re-implement those immediately. Um, and I think that we should for sure finish that wall because it's not just a wall, right? There's a lot more, there's sensors, there's a lot, you know, lighting. The At the end of the day, Kevin, this is one of the frustrating things because I'm on Homeland Security Committee. If you can't even get the guys on the other side of the aisle to admit that walls are effective, they're not you know, it's not a it's not a one stop solution. Anybody will admit that. But real security, whether you're in Fallujah, Iraq, 
you know, um, or you're at the southern border is always been and always will be overlapping deterrence. That's what security is. It's not just a wall. It's well-trained agents with the technology they need. It's the intelligence piece. It's a whole bunch of different things. But if you can't even admit like basic things like, hey, walls work, you know, and there's a reason why prisons have them, schools have them, you have them at your home, right? Castles always have them, the Great Wall of China. I mean, you can just go through all of these different, you know, examples um, of what, how they work, why they work, and why we need that as part of our security system on the southern border. Um, it's, it's tough to imagine that you're, we're going to get anywhere until, um, as the great Dan Bongino says, until America you know, until Americans in these cities who are anti-border security feel enough pain. And I think that's what you're starting to see in like New York with, you know, Air, you know, Mayor Adams, who was trumpeting uh, sanctuary cities not more than a couple years ago. And now he's like, oh, my God, this this problem is going to destroy New York City. Yeah. I mean, the, the New York example in particular, what the, the evolution, you might say, of Mayor Adams' position is case in point of what Bongino says all the time. I listen to him almost every day, which is you're, you're just not going to see this policy change yep. until enough people are, are feeling the pain. And the example, I didn't hear this, but my wife told me about it because she listens, I think, to the entire show every day, uh, that Giuliani took second try, two tries to become mayor of New York. And, and, and Dan's point was the first time people weren't feeling enough pain about what? Public safety. And then the second mayoral run, they were. And he was yeah. a good messenger for it. That actually very fittingly leads me to kind of a modern example of that, not in the city, but in a part of the, the, the U.S.-Mexico border you know well, although it's not in Arizona, it's in Texas. And, and that is where Governor Abbott, thank goodness, has trained a lot of resources, including some tractor trailers and, and razor wire. And he said on Monday, so 48 hours ago, that... And before that happened, there were 3,300 illegal aliens crossing a day. Mm -hmm. And that the day prior, three crossed. I saw that. This, this is keeping it simple. Yeah. No, I was just down, I was just down there. The whole Republican uh, conference went down there. I don't know, maybe it was like four or five weeks ago. And uh, it was unbelievable. Just, you know, while we, while we were there talking to agents, guys would be coming up, walking over the connex box wall and you know we would see groups you know coming up but i did see that headline and i'm honestly i'm not surprised because this stuff is it's pretty simple it's really it is common sense but you know we've been incentivizing it for so long and i mean this whole senate border deal was just a codification of this invasion really that's all it was um, and so it, it, it is great to see one more example of how you can shut down the border how you can protect your, the citizens that we're supposed to be protecting with a little common sense. So we've got made great progress in the last two days on the, the, the border non-security part of this Senate bill. But predictably, the, as I told people on the radio yesterday, you know, the empire always strikes back. The swamp yep. always strikes back to That's your right. point. They never sleep. That's right. This morning, Schumer and McConnell announced that they're going to take up the foreign aid portion. And, and you know our position on that at Heritage is uh, circumspect, to say the least. Yep. How do you see this unfolding? Like, it's basically a question for you to give our audience a sense of an insider's view of how you think this will unfold in the Senate 
and how you and your house leadership, who's been strong on both of these issues, will respond. Um, yeah, with with the foreign aid part, um, in specifically Ukraine, yeah, um, because I've just seen such, you know, an appetite to continue to send money over there um, on both sides of the aisle. It, it, it blows my mind. I tend to take a more pessimistic approach. I expect the Uniparty to do what the Uniparty does um, and to continue to sell out the American people. That's like my default position. And, you know, uh, when we when we win, when we stop them, hey, I, you know, I might celebrate for two minutes and then I say, okay, what's what's the next fight we're going to have? And so I, I expect, um, you know, I won't be surprised if they're able to, you know, get another supplemental going and send it over there. And it just breaks my heart, Kevin, because I realize that the American people are hurting right now. Um, you know, many of them live paycheck to paycheck. I think I saw a stat the other day was like, I think, you know, 60% of them, you know, have a thousand dollars or less in the bank. And it's just, and I, I, like I said, I know this inflation is killing them and, uh, they feel like, they, they feel like nobody cares about them, you know? Um, and, and we could go into that, the whole Ukraine piece, but it, you know, when you look at how much money we've sent over there, I think it's over $150 billion now. When you look at all, we just did a really cool video. Uh, Zach, my comms guy, put together a really cool video um, about, you know, the Uniparty's priorities, Ukraine versus America. And, you know, you've got, um, you know, the, the the guys down at the border saying they don't have enough resources yet. You know, here we're going to send $60 billion more dollars over to Ukraine. And it's like it doesn't make any sense to me for for many different reasons. One, because you're you're stoking you're you're stoking the fires of this uh, foreign war, sending you know that you know with arguably the one of the biggest nuclear powers in the world, right? And uh, I don't think people have played that out in their mind. Like you know, you always contingency plan. Okay, if I do a, what could X, Y, or Z be? That's that's what you're that's what you should be doing if you're serious about planning anything. And I just don't think too many people would be, I think a lot of people might second guess their decisions. If you started seeing, you know, nuclear weapons, you know, taking out some of our American cities because, you know, we actually did, you know, push the Russians too far. And I think that you, if you don't look at things like that, if you don't look at possible outcomes like that, you're an absolute fool. That being said, I mean, um, you know, we can't afford it, Kevin. $34 trillion in debt. You know, we're running an over $2 trillion annual deficit. And, you know, it's just, I don't know. It's its the furthest thing from, you know, America first and taking care of our own citizens. And that's not to say that, you know, <clears throat> I've heard some of the arguments uh, about, hey, if we can defeat one of our biggest adversaries without firing a shot, that that's not saying that there's not, um, you know, maybe some validity to that argument, but... Um, I think we're being, I think we're being foolish. And, uh, I think that when you can't afford it, um, you know, you have to look at, you have to look at, uh, the constraints that we have right now. And yeah, that's, that's what the American <clears throat> people are telling us about Ukraine, right? I mean, I'm sure you hear this all across your district and someone can decide that they, they're really supportive of military aid. Someone can decide that they aren't supportive of that. The point is, yeah, we, we want Ukraine to win, but at the best case scenario with the uniparty is misordered priorities. But when you pair that with 
the amount of money that they've already spent, we've already spent right. our money, your constituents' money, with the misordered priorities and the fact that we aren't talking about a country, the United States, that's like in its heyday. It's, it, we're not living in our golden exactly. hour. We are, and I, I lament this, I don't celebrate this, obviously. Right. We, we have all kinds of economic and social and cultural, obviously political challenges. We're not the United States of the 1980s. We're not the United States of the 1960s. We're a country that has deep problems that we really have to get busy about fixing. The Uniparty not only doesn't want to look at those, they make them worse. They aggravate the problem by proposing that we spend $60 billion more dollars on Ukraine. No, you're absolutely right. Um, and it's one of my biggest frustrations being up here <clears throat> because I look at the other side and I know, I know where their agenda leads. Um, and I, I look at the, uh, <clears throat> you know, just some of the reflections of Marxism and, you know, socialism within their own ranks. But the thing that bothers me the most, Kevin, is that we're supposed to be the ones stopping it and we're not. And often when you see like these, these big debt ceiling raises or continuing resolutions, a lot of the times the biggest things that happen, that happen in Washington, D.C. are bipartisan and it's Democrats and Republicans. And uh, <clears throat> almost none of it is good for the country. And that's when you, watch, when you watch the same team take the field over and over again and you continually say, you know, see the same outcome – it does, uh, it does get hard to be a little optimistic up here. You know it, what I mean? It, it does. You know, I, I'm, I'm kind of smirking as you say that in, in agreement because one of our older kids, one of our college-age kids called me the other day and she said, Dad, I finally figured out what you mean. I said, well, what, what are you talking about? She said, the word bipartisan usually means bad news. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. And, and it's true. You know, it, it sounds sweet and warm and, you know, if there's a declaration of war against a, a real enemy, then we want that to be bipartisan, and that's good. But right now in this environment, especially like this week and next week, yeah. bipartisan is pretty bad. How old do I have to? How old do my kids have to be before I start getting those phone calls? Uh, maybe a few years older. Okay. Yeah. You got some smart smart kids. Yeah. They, you might get that yeah, phone they take, call. Yeah. They take after their mom, so they're pretty smart. Likewise. But, but yeah, I'm hoping I get some of those phone calls one of these days, and not. Oh, dad, you're an idiot. Yeah, you know, that's, not gonna that's what I get right Not now. gonna happen. You're 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 too <laughs> humble a guy. Well, give us a couple of final questions. Uh give us give us a sense of the future. Um if if things best case scenario in Washington, this election, let's just say this election cycle goes well for the for the conservative movement. For people if they aren't don't call themselves conservatives, common sense Americans. That means you come back for a second term. Yep. It means that conservatives are conservatives. I'm using that word intentionally. Common sense people are in charge of the executive branch and both chambers of the legislative branch. What do you think the top two or three priorities are? I think number one has to be, um, you know, border security. I think that has to be number one. I think number two has to be a little fiscal sanity. Um, actually, maybe getting together something as um, weird as a budget. And Imagine that. I know. I, I think that ha that has to be number two. Um, and then <clears throat> I think shutting down. I think shutting down the whole Ukraine uh, spending spree. I think that that has to be right up there as well. And then addressing 
you know, a, a lot of the crime that's out of control in, in our cities. I think that that's, those are some of the biggest priorities that the next administration and next Congress is going to face. You know, I'll, I'll uh, respond to that with, with this. I, I agree with all that for what it's worth. But the, although you and I are both fairly skeptical of polls and you're not going to make a decision based on polls, Heritage is not going to do that. But we've been doing some focus groups around the country of people who are in the political center. Okay. Because we're trying, actually the motivation of that is to figure out why they're disengaged. And, you know, there may be a political purpose to that or a policy purpose to that. But, you know, I just, as a fellow American, I want to know why they don't care as much as you and I do. Right. Right. And what makes me think about this, because we did, we did at least one of these in Phoenix, is they said, and this is almost verbatim from some of the respondents, we can't afford gas, groceries, and rent at the same time that we're also insecure. And so the moderator followed up and said, well, what do you mean by insecurity? Yep. And particularly the, the folks in Phoenix said, in all you know, ethnic backgrounds, men and women, they said, we're, we're insecure at the border, we're insecure in our neighborhood, public safety, yep. and something's wrong with Washington where they're, they seem more interested in the plight of other countries. And some of them issued the caveat, nothing against the Ukrainians, you know, we want them to prevail, right. but why mm. does that have to be our fight? Yeah. And this is the mood of the country right now. And I, I get deeply worried actually, even though like you, I'm hopeful, um, if, the, if the mood of the country is not met by political leaders this year, because Americans are more than sour about where things are. Yeah, they, they absolutely are, and I couldn't agree with them more. I think uh, what you're seeing now is complete foolishness, um, and, you know, I, I hear the same thing. But I also think that, you know, some of what you were saying at the end of your commentary there really describes that this fight, in my opinion, is less and less um, becoming Republican versus Democrat, and I think it's, you know, more of a, you know, you know, you know, populist nationalist movement versus globalists. And I think that, you know, uh, when, when you see our government more concerned about the plight of others, as you said, um, you know, I think that really rubs Americans the wrong way and it should, because that's not what they're, that's not what they expect their tax dollars to go to. That's not what they expect their leaders to prioritize. They expect, and it's not that Americans aren't generous people. They absolutely are. I think we're the you know, most generous country in the world and have some of the most generous people in the world. But when you're not even addressing their needs first, their safety first, their, their infrastructure first, you know, um, the needs of their family first, um, you're not, they, they are going to sour on you as they should. And so, um, like you, Kevin, I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping that we can turn this thing around. I'm hoping that common sense can prevail. And I'm hoping that the American people continue to put enough pressure on the squishes up here and the members of the Uniparty, um, and either, either eject them out of here um, or they put so much pressure on them. And that's, that's the cool thing about a lot of these folks up here. They're so squishy and they have no backbone. And so they basically just go the direction of pressure. And, and that's what I was saying earlier. If you can, if you can, if our, you know, the base and, and just, just people around the country, even independents, people in the middle, I don't really care, can put enough pressure on these folks. You know, I, I just want to see this thing turn around. And that, that's honestly why I'm up here, you know, because, 
it would be unsat if our kids don't get to grow up with what we were blessed to grow up with. And if, if they don't, that's because we didn't do enough. One concluding question for you. Let's say someone in the audience, maybe several people in the audience are, they wake up discouraged. You know, may, I, I hear this a lot. I'm sure you hear this around the country or around, around your district. I hear it around the country. People still believe in America. People want to hope. And the basis of that for a lot of Americans is their faith as it is as for you has been evident in this conversation. It certainly is for me. What's your message to them during their moments of discouragement, particularly when they say, you know, America's best days may be behind it and maybe it's just not worth fighting for? Well, I think it's always worth fighting for, Kevin. And I think that <clears throat> you never lose until you give up. And I would say to those people, um, you know, when I got up this morning, my hope didn't come from, you know, you know, reading the Bongino report or going to, you know, read through my headlines, which I do. My hope always comes when I break out that Bible and start, you know, getting centered that way. So that would be my encouragement to people. But the last thing I would say, Kevin, is <clears throat> a saying that I love, and I'm sure you do as well. This kind of, I think, can put things in perspective of where we're, where we're at and what the possible future is for this country. One of the cool things about these trials that we face right now in these hard times is that hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. And I think we have a bunch of trials right now because we've had a bunch of weak men creating hard times for everybody. But if you look at that statement, it's cyclical, right? We're right back to hard times. What does that create? Strong men and women. And I'm hoping that because of that, you're going to see, as I think you mentioned in your World Economic Forum speech, um, I think you're going to see a lot of lions that continue to awaken and step up uh, to meet the occasion. As C.S. Lewis said, I guess almost a century ago, uh, be, beware men without chests. The weak men. Yep. Eli Crane, thanks for your time. Thanks for your service in military uniform, your service in the uniform you don't like to wear now, which is a suit. That's right. And thanks for your faith. God bless you. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it, Kevin. You bet. I told you you would enjoy that. We will have Congressman Crane back again, hopefully many times over the years. But most of all, I hope that that dose of reality, as well as that dose of hopefulness, gives you a sense of what's at stake, why you need to be engaged, why you need to get your friends and family engaged, and, and however that means to you. I don't even mean that necessarily just politically, but making sure that you're paying attention to your neighbors and your friends and your family. America is still the last best hope for this world, and we're part of it. Take care. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.